0: Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we give to you what is already yours, and again ask that with these gifts, the kingdom of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the beauty of Christ, might be extended from this place to the ends of the earth, in Jesus' name, amen. We want to look again at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and following, so if you would turn with me there and uh, give, give attention to the reading of God's good word given to his people. O, nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Again, Lord... uh, We ask you that you would help us, that you would come by the power in the person of your spirit, not only so that we might learn some things, but so that we might be shaped, changed, so that our our hearts might really be engaged and a bit more transformed, so that our living at some level, Lord Jesus, begins to look different. Before the eyes of the watching world, we pray. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, you had to have been here last week for this funny story to be funny for you. I'm driving home from worship, I'm on Indian River Boulevard. I'm behaving myself, and this car goes by me, and I recognize the car. I'm going 50 miles an hour, Indian River Boulevard, and this car goes by me. We're right about 41st Street, just, just south, south of Bridgepoint, just before you get to Laguna. I think that's what it's called. And this car goes by me, and I recognize the car. Not only do I recognize the car, I recognize the passenger. Not only do I recognize the passenger, I recognize the driver. They're members of my church. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but I picked up my phone, and and the voice on the other end of the phone says, Hello, and I said, Gene, it's Mike. I'm right behind you. You're over the speed limit. So we had a good laugh, right? (laughs) We had a good laugh. Now, as one lawbreaker to another, it's really important that we have a right view of the law. It's really important that we have a right view of the law and our relationship to it. And we said last week that what Paul gives us in this passage, what Paul shows us in this passage, is that as Christians... And for Christians, there are three things. And the first of them is that there is a higher law, and it is the law of love. And there is a great hope. There is, there is one law, this higher law. There is one hope, this greater hope. And there is one life. There is a life to be lived that flows out of this higher law and this great hope. So the higher law is the law of love, and that law applies to those within the church. We extend this law of love to one another. We extend this law of love to those outside the church. To whom do I owe this love? It seems pretty clear from this passage, particularly Verse 8, 9, and 10, those three verses that love extends indiscriminately. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. To a neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Good Samaritan. (laughs) Now, I want to continue to think about these three points, one law, one hope, one life. But I do think it's important that we consider, that we think a bit about this matter of the law. Because I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding out there in the church about our relationship as Christians to the law. What is my relationship to the law? Christ has come, right? What on this side of the cross is my relationship to the law? Well, here's the first question. What law is in view Well, it seems pretty clear from this passage, and from other places in the New Testament, but this passage, that what Paul has in mind is what we call the moral law. The law that governs relationships. Relationship between God and man certainly has a moral component to it, but relationship between man and man is clearly what's in view here. How do we relate to each other? And Paul identifies four commandments cited from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 from the Ten Commandments, which touch our relationship to one another, person to person. Relationships are governed, as I think we'll see, relationships are governed by by a kind of law. And Paul says that law fulfills these four commandments. He uses that word a couple of times in the passage. Law is the fulfillment of these commandments, or any other command that touches relationships between persons. That's the concern here, right? That's the the context, the setting. How do we live as the church, within the church? How do we live as we extend ourselves out beyond the walls of the church, out into the world? It's about how we relate to other persons. So when I'm faithful to how God has ordered life, For example, with respect to human sexuality, with respect to marriage. When I live life as God intends for life to be lived, I'm loving you. I'm loving you. When I respect the sanctity of your life, I'm loving you. When I respect your property, even to the place of defending it, I'm loving you. If I steal, I'm not loving you. If I commit adultery, I'm not loving you. If I do your physical person harm, I'm not loving you. And then there's this one about coveting, right? Which if, you, which if you wondered whether or not someone said to me recently, and I really agree with this, one of our members said, you know, the danger in reading the Ten Commandments is that you can begin to feel smug about yourself. Well, I would suggest to you that that may be true of five through nine, but if you look at one through four, and then especially number ten, it's pretty tough to be smug. If I'm envying your stuff, I'm not loving you. If I think that I deserve your stuff, I'm not loving you. And actually, if I'm coveting my own stuff, in the sense that my own stuff I consider to be mine, and I hoard it to myself and for myself, and in the process lose the capacity for generosity and liberality, I'm not loving you. I'm not loving you. So you see, all of these commands are fulfilled, aren't they, in love? I mean, that's what Paul is getting at. We're talking about the moral law here. And then here's the second comment that I'd make, and I'd make this as a point of clarification with respect to this this particular thing. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 14, that we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. He uses that language. Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And I think it's that phrase that sometimes gets miscast, leaving us with the impression that because Christ has come, and has taken upon himself responsibility for fulfilling the law, and has in fact then gone to the cross to bear the punishment which I deserve for my violation of the law. That's all about grace, Christ living for me and dying for me. The misunderstanding of the passage is that I'm no longer under law in that sense, but now I'm under grace, meaning now I don't have to care in some weird sense about law. I don't have to worry about law. Folks, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here at all. If You look at that verse, and, and we could say this of other passages where he uses similar language. If you look at that particular verse in its context... It seems to me that it's pretty clear what it is that Paul is suggesting when he says we're no longer under law but under grace. Verse twelve of chapter six: Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Sound like Romans twelve? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What's the imagery here? The imagery here is the imagery of master and slave. And the dynamic that is in play is the dynamic of dominion and reign. Right? I told you this. I mean, you know this. Think. Maybe you don't remember. But a couple of months ago, I downloaded a whole bunch of Dylan stuff. Not Dylan Thomas. Bob Dylan. A whole bunch of... And you know, I mean, one of the great Dylan songs of all time from 1975. you got to serve somebody. You gonna. You gonna. You do. You serve. Nobody's free. Freedom is such an illusion. Folks, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And you do. And that's the imagery that Paul uses here. It's the imagery of master and slave. But notice the dynamic of that imagery. It's the imagery of bondage. It's not the imagery of freedom. It's the imagery of dominion that you find in chapter 6. So what does Christ come to do when Christ comes? See, we've said this when we looked at chapter 6 and then into chapter 7. We've said that law and sin make for a really bad marriage. Paul says this in chapter 7. Alludes to it, suggests it throughout this section of the letter. That what law does is stir up sin says, I never would have known what coveting was if the law hadn't said, don't covet. I never would have known what it would mean to touch a park bench that has just been painted if somebody hadn't posted a sign on the bench that says, do not touch wet paint. You walk by the bench, you pay no attention to it until somebody sticks the sign on the bench that says, don't touch this. The minute somebody says, don't touch this, every fiber of your being goes there. See, law and sin make for a bad, bad marriage. It's not that law is bad. Paul says that in chapter 7. The law is not bad. The law is good. But you wed law to sin and you suddenly got a big problem. And what does it do? It creates a bondage. It creates dominion. It creates oppression. That's the dynamic here. See, apart from Christ, law together with sin creates this partnership that leaves me in bondage. Look, just just for the record, if you don't know this in your own experience, just let me tell you, even in its most subtle forms, in its most acceptable forms, sin never did anybody any good. It didn't. I'm not being political here, okay? Please don't hear it this way. Somebody said to me this last week, our president is taking us down. Folks, let me suggest to you we got there by ourselves. We got there by ourselves. Humanity gets there on its own by casting off the good, gracious, righteous, rule of a good and gracious and righteous God. And when that rule gets cast off, nothing good happens. When Paul says, you're no longer under law, but under grace, there is no question in my mind that he is saying very clearly No longer are you a prisoner to law in partnership with sin, but you have been set free in two respects. You've been delivered from the curse of it, and you've been delivered from the power of it. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and following, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. These two things are going on there, folks. Paul is summarizing the beauty of the gospel. That while law in partnership with sin will convict and condemn us and imprison us, the work of Jesus in our behalf in fulfilling the law, in taking on the responsibility for the law, living the law, and then going to the cross to suffer in your place as a perfect sacrifice. He has suffered the consequence of your lawlessness and he has set you free from the power of sin and death that you might walk in newness of life. He fulfills the law. He's the perfect interpreter of the law. Because of his life and death, you're no longer under its judgment. Because of his resurrection and his new life, you who are united to him by faith through the power of the Spirit, in your lives, he is now working so that this moral law, which is an expression of the beauty and loveliness and character of the one true God, begins to be worked into the fabric of your existence. Right? I mean, it's a simple calculus in one sense. You're free, and why in the world would you want to go back? Did it ever do you any good? Did it ever serve you well? No, you served it, and it brutalized you. Why would you want to go back? Christ has set you free and is now, as we walk this Christian life, fulfilling the law in us. He is working out the perfections of the law. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Isn't it reasonable? Doesn't it make sense that the one who himself fulfills the law and is himself love would see to it that those who, again, by faith, through the Spirit's work, wouldn't He want for them to become what He Himself is, which is love? Let me put it to you this way, and maybe we can talk about this more this evening. A good thing, important thing to talk about, that we have a proper understanding of our relationship to the law. Let me put it to you this way. Life is essentially covenantal. Meaning this. Life is about relationships. And persons are in covenant with each other. And the essence of covenant is not law, but it is relationships. The essence of covenant is not law. The essence of covenant is relationship. And this reaches all the way back into eternity. The Father and the Son exist together with the Spirit in relationship, in covenant. In mutual delight and joy and obligation. There's obligation among the persons of the Godhead. Because they are in covenant with each other. It's the Father's good pleasure to seek the exaltation of the Son. It is the Son's chief delight not to do His own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent Him. It is the blessed joy and privilege of the Holy Spirit to seek the exaltation of the Father as the Son brings honor and glory to the Father. It's the Spirit's great delight to see the Father and the Son glorified and exalted. There is relationship, covenant among them. And that covenant relationship has its constraints. We should not be afraid to say that. We should not be afraid to suggest that there is, properly understood, a kind of limit within God. It is not Possible for God to lie. Not possible. It's not possible for the Son to be the Father. It's not possible for the Father to be the Son. It's not possible for the Spirit to be the Father or the Son. Not possible for the Spirit to be the Father and the Son. There is a beautiful economy among the persons of the Godhead existing in covenant relationship from all eternity. And there is this sense in which that covenantal relationship exhibits itself, puts itself on display as the Father does what the Father does and the Son does what the Son does and the Spirit does what the Spirit does and they do not do violence to the beauty of that dance by crossing lines. The essence of that covenant relationship is love. You ask, you ask, what is it that distinguishes God, actually defines Him? It is love. God is love. 1 John 4 8. And you see, you see that love put on display as the Father seeks the exaltation of the Son, and as the Son seeks the glory of the Father, and as the Holy Spirit seeks the exaltation and the glory of the Father and the Son. It's beautiful. So you ask, what is the real significance to being a Christian? What's the real significance to being a Christian? A person who has come to understand the gospel at some level and has embraced Jesus Christ. Do you know what it is to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be one who has been invited into, gathered up into the eternal love dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in a relationship of covenantal, ineffable beauty and glory and joy and delight. Law and grace are not at odds for the Christian. Law, God, God dictating policy, if you will. God, God conferring wisdom, if you will. God setting limits, if you will. Law is simply the outworking, the expression of God's grace very character as love. And so when Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, you want to know what love is? This is what love looks like. Love looks like honoring the estate of marriage. I had a conversation, fascinating conversation with a very dear friend yesterday. He said, you know, I can't say this to my wife because I'm not sure she'll understand it. I'm going to figure out a way to say it so that she'll understand it. he said, I care more about marriage than my wife. I honor the institution of marriage above my wife. I love marriage more than I love my wife. Because marriage, in some real, vivid, poignant way, evidences the reality that God is. And so, for God to set limits on the institution of marriage and human sexuality, is for God to do a profoundly gracious and loving thing. See, grace and law are not at odds. It's sin that screws everything up. It's sin partnering with law that causes the problem. It's when law begins to expose what's in my heart, it feels like a problem. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, what is all of this moralistic claptrap about? Let me be a good Lutheran for just a second and direct you to Galatians and Paul's observation and Luther's delight in Paul's observation that the law is a schoolmaster to slap us over the wrists or the fingers with a ruler when I do something wrong? Ultimately, no. No. The law is a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ wherein I find freedom and deliverance not from the beauty and loveliness of the law but from the bondage and curse that result because of sin. Grace and law are not at odds when when Paul says don't kill. Okay, we could go off into a whole conversation. I know, about war and what is just war and whether or not it's appropriate in war to kill. You know as well as I do what Paul's talking about and what Moses was talking about, what God was talking about through Moses, his premeditated murder, the wanton destruction of an image bearer of God. And when God says don't do that, what's he doing? He's showing you how much he loves you. You. When he says, don't steal, don't even covet, law is not opposed to grace. It is exceedingly gracious for God in the midst of this crazy world in which we live to say, look, this is what is an expression of my character, this is who I am, and this is what is exceedingly beneficial to you. This is a good thing. So law and grace are not for the Christian at odds. It is grace that draws me into the world of the Father and the Son and out of the world of sin and death where law only oppresses and kills because of its marriage to corrupt hearts. Grace draws me into an environment of love a love which is seen in specific hard acts of loving in the kinds of terms that the apostle enumerates. In chapters 12 and 13 and 14, my good friend with whom I spoke yesterday, said, do you know how many commands there are in chapter 12 of Romans? I said, I, I don't know. I was embarrassed that I didn't know. I didn't tell him I'd been preaching through Romans. <laughs> I was embarrassed. I didn't know. I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to make a guess. 12, 15, 40. 40 commands in Romans chapter 12 before you even get to 13. God cares about law because God cares about you. God cares about law-keeping because God cares about you. God cares about righteousness, not not so you can parade your righteousness around and try and impress me or somebody else, especially, most especially, God, not at all. God cares about law. God cares about righteousness because, because law properly, rightly understood righteousness, properly understood, ironically, paradoxically, because of union with Christ, is life-giving, is life-giving. So what of this greater hope? What of this, great, of this greater hope? I've just got to summarize this. I'm sorry. But Paul, Paul uses a metaphor of day and night, night and day. As a way of of compelling us and reasoning with us to understand that to move in the direction of righteousness, to move in the direction of law, of lawfulness and obedience, is only consistent with who we are. He says night and day, right? Barb went down to the beach this morning. She sent me a little, I was writing my sermon. She got to go to the beach. She sends me a little text message with a picture of the sunrise. Look, this is it. This is what's going on in this passage. Very simply, Paul is saying, the day has come. Is it fully here? No, it's not fully here. There's a sunrise that has occurred. What is that sunrise? This is where the greater hope is. The sunrise has occurred in that until the appearing of Jesus, the whole world lay in darkness. Remember, O Holy Night? Long lay the world in sin and darkness pining. And then Jesus came. And what happened? The day began to break. And Paul's saying, you're no longer in the night. Don't live in the night. You're a part of the day. Live in the day. Is it fully here? No, it's not. But the beams have shot across the crest of the horizon. The daylight has broken. The kingdom has come. It's present and it's present here in power. It was present in Jesus. It's present in His church. Not fully realized, But the day is advancing. And the time will come when the day is fully here. But you are of the day, not the night. You are of light, not darkness. Be who you are. Be what you are. Move in the direction of what you are. And notice he says, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Hey, folks, that's chronological. That's literal. Your salvation, the final realization of total daylight, is a day closer than it was yesterday. It's nearer today than it was yesterday or a week ago. Doesn't that make you glad? And so what is this one life, this one life? As we've said again and again, moment by moment, day by day, is the whole business more and more by God's grace in connection with other believers, with my brothers and sisters, putting on more and more and more the garments of Christ. And those garments, if you distill them down, if you reduce them down, those garments are love. Love. So it seems to me there's no... No discrepancy in that sense. No conflict between grace and law. It's sin that creates the conflict. But for the Christian, united to Jesus Christ, his commands are not burdensome. Hard? Dang right. Burdensome? Crushing? No. That's what sin does. His commandments are not burdensome. Jesus says it. Good word for you to have in mind as we come to this table. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, This is hard. It's hard. You call us to something that exceeds our grasp. We freely, gladly acknowledge it just as David did in Psalm 25. But you call us to something deep and rich and life-giving and beautiful and lovely. Something which is in fact an expression of your very being and character. An expression of love. Oh God, by your grace give us grace that this love in specific acts of love might be more and more evident among us. And help us as we come now to this table. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. We have you stand as we pray.